0: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 53.
1: Under one arm he should have the two tables of stone. I've always conjectured that he really under the other arm should have a set of engineering blueprints because God gave him, gave Moses, in addition to the the law, the Ten Commandments. He also gave him some very explicit, detailed, engineering specifications for a portable sanctuary that God wanted Moses to build so that he, he, God, could dwell among his people. And we have this strange structure called the tabernacle, and we study it. It's very important to study, first of all, so you really understand both the tabernacle and the subsequent temples, but also it's interesting because it is so detailed, and when that's detailed, you know it's replete with symbolism. Portable structure. A courtyard, so to speak, circumscribed uh, by a linen fence above eye level, white linen with posts and set on brass sockets, posts and you know, uh, laced placed up so that the, it would perform an effective fence. You go through the one door, one opening, the gate, you go through that. First thing you encounter is the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice, where all the Levitical offerings were, of course, offered. Next, a brass laver where they were priests washed. Now, the symbolism of those is pretty obvious, brazen the altar, brazen altar being the altar of sacrifice, speaking of the cross, ultimately. The brazen laver, where, we, where the priests wash, is analogous to the word of God. How do we know it from Ephesians 4? Now you are clean through the washing of the water by the word which I have spoken unto you. The priests wash in it, we wash what? With the word every day. You're washed twice. You're wa- washed once and for all judicially in the blood of Christ. But you're washed every day in the word. When you've offered the offerings and you've washed, prepared yourself, then you confront the tabernacle proper. Before I get into that, what's inside, of course, as you enter the door on the left is the menorah, the 7 branched lampstand. On the right, table of showbread with 12 loaves, one for each of the 12 tribes, changed every Shabbat. And just in front of, associated with, but just in front of the Holy of Holies, is this golden altar, three-foot-high altar of incense, Offered, incense offered every morning and evening. And, of course, through the veil on the other side was the Ark of the Covenant. And, of course, it's lid, as we would call it, the, the solid gold lid called the mercy seat. It's kind of interesting to consider the tabernacle proper, this building. It's a portable building made of vertical planks. Planks apparently made of acacia wood, the thorn bush of the desert, the same material that was the burning bush, and it wasn't, wrapped in gold. Planks wrapped in gold. Speaking of his humanity and his deity. These planks were set vertically with whole, with uh, rings so that horizontal poles could make it a rigid structure. And they enclosed a space of roughly 15 feet wide, about 30 feet deep for the first room, and then a 15-foot cubicle space behind it, the Holy of Roughly 45 feet by 15, to give you a rough feeling, a rough idea, without quarreling about what, exactly how long a it was. The point that's interesting, though, is these, these, these uh, planks, as I would call them, were wrapped in gold, must have made an incredibly beautiful structure. Solid gold building. Not solid gold, I mean it's wrapped in wood, but I mean it's gold. You go inside, you've got everything inside the tabernacle is gold, everything outside is brass. Tabernacle itself rests on silver sockets. And that's interesting, because Levitically we discover that silver represents blood. The temple redemptive coin was silver. Jesus is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Judas tries to undo the bargain, throwing the silver, 30 pieces of silver on the temple floor and says, Behold, I betrayed innocent blood. See, the silver blood is always linked Levitically, from Leviticus all the way through. Well, what did the tab- tabernacle rest on? Silver sockets, or resting on what? Christ's blood. Every detail of the tabernacle speaks of Jesus Christ. He makes claim to every, all the major issues. There's one gate, one door. I am the door. Anyone comes in other than by me is a thief and a robber. Praise an altar, of course, he's the altar of sacrifice, the labor. I am the living water. You enter inside. I am the light of the world. We consider the architecture of the menorah. I am the vine, ye are the branches. The the number of six of man with one makes the seven the completion. Turn to the right, there's the showbread. I am the bread of life. Altar of incense. That's his role today in the intercessor. The prayers of the saints. Now. The reason I'm getting into all of this is if you're in the tabernacle and you look, what did they cover this thing with? Well, the first thing, they had four coverings. The first covering was linen embroidered with gold, scarlet, blue, and purple. And even today, scientists are casting the world for the right marine snails to get the right blue and the right purple for the Levitical garments. Because that dye comes from marine snails. But this tapestry with the cherry bim embroidered in gold and all that must have been gorgeous, right? So if you're inside the tabernacle looking up, you'd see it as the ceiling because it was covering it, right? But they didn't leave it at that. They then covered that with goat's hair. I don't know what goat hair looks like, but it doesn't sound too attractive, does it? Why goat hair? Because of Leviticus um, 16. The scapegoat was one of his roles, wasn't it? You can study Leviticus 16 and find out about the scapegoat which was a, 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 a one of the ways that they dealt with the sins of the people. On top of the goat hair, they put ram skins dyed in red. Why? I believe it was the ram that was, speaks of Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve had their fig leaves replaced by, coats of skins, by God himself, teaching them that by the shedding of innocent blood they'd be covered, not by their own works. That same ram was substituted in Genesis 22, in lieu of Isaac. So we can see the symbolism of the ramskins. But then the last covering, the linen, the goat's hair, then the ramskins. Then the last covering is porpoise skins. It says badger skins in the Old English. Most scholars believe it was porpoises that were brought from Egypt. Now, I don't know what they look like, but I suspect they weren't very attractive compared to the gold, linen, all that stuff. Why porpoise? What do we know about porpoise skins? Well, it's kind of interesting. We find in um, Exodus 16, that that's what their shoes were made of during the wilderness wanderings. And one of the miracles that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 8 and 29 and Nehemiah 9, among other places, is the interesting thing about those shoes is that for 40 years they didn't wear out. And we also can study, you can take a concordance, study shoes. When you get the book of Ruth, you discover the shoe was to one person a symbol of disgrace, but to the one who received it. It was both a marriage license to take a Gentile bride, and it was the means by which Naomi was redeemed to her land. We find in Ruth portrayed the role of the kinsman-redeemer. Boaz is the, kins, the goel, the kinsman-redeemer. Taking a Gentile bride and redeeming the land to Naomi as a type of Israel. An interesting study. You won't understand Revelation 5 and so on unless you understand the book of Ruth. But stand back now. Let's go outside in our mind's eye to this tabernacle and see what you see when you come up to it. You walk up to it and you see nothing but a white linen. That's at the upper thigh level. All you see is his righteousness. But there's one door, one gate. It's interesting, there was only one ark in Noah's day. (laughs) Only one ark. Lots of sincere theologians outside beating on the door when the rain started. One ark. One door to the ark. Tabernacle, one gate. But as you go through with the sacrifice and the washing, you then can behold the tabernacle. What did you see? It had no form nor comeliness that you should desire. It had no natural beauty until you entered in. And then you'd behold the gold and the and so on. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now now we're getting down to it. That's, a, uh, that's just warm-up, Isaiah. Now he's getting at it. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. This is the Messiah we're talking about. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Boy, doesn't that go on today. Esteemed him. He's mocked and ridiculed through the sacrilege in our Society. But I want you to notice the very specific theology that Isaiah lays out as to what this is really all about. Up till now, we have a person who's badly abused and rejected fulfilling some role. Why? What for? Isaiah rises to that occasion, verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried Our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Wow. That lays it right out. And I suggest you can go all through the book of Romans or some of Paul's other epistles and not have it any clearer than what Isaiah just laid out in a couple of verses. He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You know, it's interesting that you can look at the world and their beliefs and divide it in some simple categories. There are those, of course, that are antagonistic to Jesus Christ in all kinds of shapes and sizes. There are, of course, the spooky occult, Satan worshipers in various guises. I applaud the clarity. They don't give me a problem at all because we know where they stand. The secular humanists. We're now beginning to realize if we look at society that secular humanism is bankrupt. Even the secular humanists are admitting it. Alan Bloom and others have been very articulate in making that point. And then, of course, you got the most insulting theologians of all, those that ascribe everything to randomness. Far more insulting than Baal or Moloch or some of the ancient idols. But then there's another group, and they're the ones to be careful of. They're the ones that pretend to be Christian. They go under Christian banners. They wear the insignias. They, they, they say the right words. And they have all kinds of packaging. You name it, it's there. They have one thing in common. They deny Isaiah 4 and 5. They say Christ was a great teacher. Oh, really? you got to be kidding. He was either a lunatic, a liar, if he isn't Lord. He said he was God. If he thought he was God and wasn't, he's a lunatic. You can't call him a great teacher. A little weird, really, say. Claimed to be God. Maybe he knew he was God, wasn't God and claimed to be, then he's a liar. See, those out of the three possibilities, two of those, of course, are pretty self-definitive. Unless he really was who he said he was. He's not a great teacher. He's something far more than that. These various groups will find a way to deny his deity or some even sort of acknowledge that. But what they really focus on is the denial that he died in your place you find some group and you're trying to examine, don't get hung up with what what some people call the peripheral theology. What's the central core? Do they recognize, acknowledge, and embrace the idea that Jesus Christ was not only God, he was man, and more than that, he died in your place, the vicarious suffering and death of Jesus Christ. That's the core of the gospel. And one thing that all the cults, as we call them, have in common is some mechanism to deny that. The Jehovah's Witnesses have their way. The Mormons on the inside of their theology have their way. You can go through all the various groups, an amazing number of groups, and when you get inside and look carefully what they really teach, you discover they deny the central issue that he was God who became flesh, dwelt among us, and then died in our place that we might live. He hath borne our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, if you really want one verse out of this whole ensemble to really master, I do recommend for those of you who are inclined to, to go ahead and memorize the chapter, it's worth it. But if you're going to pick one verse, pick verse 6. It says it all. It starts with the word all, and it ends with the word all. And it says, it, it, it clearly describes both our predicament and what the solution is. All we, you and I, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Boy, there it is. Crisp, undeniable. Isaiah uses a rifle, not a shotgun. It's right there. All we like Sheba have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's the gospel in the Old Testament as clear as... And resonant, as you'll find anywhere. Verse 7. Now it goes back to the physics of it, the the narrative part of it. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. What an amazing thing that is. As we read the accounts in the Gospels, how fascinating it is he doesn't defend himself. The only time he speaks to the Sanhedrin is when the law required him to. He was silent before them until the high priest says, I adjure thee by the living God, tell us who are you the Christ. And under oath he says, you said it. I sure am, in effect. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as the lamb to the slaughter. There's not an explicit definite article, but the Hebrew grammar requires the implicit definite article. He was brought to the lamb. Actually, he was brought as the lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, that is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Made no defense on his part. None. Why? Because that was his destiny. That was his mission assigned to him by the Father before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 4 tells us all of this was settled before Adam was created. God was not surprised when Adam fell. God knew what kind of mess we'd find ourselves in. But he anticipated it all, all our needs. And provided for it. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he is cut off out of the land of the living. Well, that's an interesting phrase. We find it in Daniel in effect and we find it here. That the Messiah is going to be killed. What a strange idea. Right here in the Old Testament. He was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now, that's a pretty interesting thing because he, what it actually says is they assigned him his grave. It's impersonal passive voice. And the word wicked is in the plural. We'll find in verse 12 that he's going to be numbered among the transgressors. And, of course, we know he was among between two thieves, right? But it says, it's passive voice, impersonal for the first phrase. They assigned him his grave with with the wicked, plural. But then it shifts to the active voice. He was with the rich after his death. Well, you know how this is fulfilled. We all know the story. Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and begs the body of Jesus Christ. Now, we learn a lot from that passage because, first of all, We know from a number of evidences that Joseph apparently was one of the richest men in the area. The fact that he had direct access to the Roman governor of Judea tells you a great deal. It tells you two things for sure. One is that he had rank. Joseph of Arimathea obviously had swag. You don't go approach the Roman governor of Judea, especially in these tense times, unless you had access. But you also know something else if you're familiar with Roman law. He had to be next of kin. So apparently, this is conjecture, and there's all kinds of scholastic conjectures. He may have been an uncle or what have you. He may have been related to Joseph, who may have passed away by then. Who knows? We, we, these are all conjectures. But he had some kind of relationship, or his pilot would not have granted the body. And Chuck Smith has shared with me an un- unrecorded conversation, of course, which you may know about, where pilot, of course, is amazed that this rich man he says, "Joe, you've got this new tomb for your family, and you're going to give it to this criminal. And Joseph says, Oy, just for the weekend. <laughs> I steal my best stuff from Chuck. Isn't that great? He moves <laughs> <laughs> with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit. In his mouth. Yes, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Oh, come on. What do you mean? It pleased the Lord to bruise him? What does that mean? The father loved his son. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? Certainly not because he enjoyed bruising him. That's obviously not the context. But because of the benefit it would accrue to you and I. That God loves you so much that He endured you know, if I can use my phrase this for what it would the be benefit it accrues to you. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. For our benefit. not certainly not his. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his body an offering for sin. Is that what it says? Another word there. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Ouch, wait a minute. All this foregoing discussion, the nails, the wound, all the physical abuse probably far more painful, far deeper in many respects than you and I without a medical background can fully appreciate. And yet, that's not the point. That's what I might call the packaging. What's really going on here? It goes at least three levels, probably a lot more. First level is the bodily form. We look at that and we feel, anyone in this room can feel the pain. And yet, here it says, "He may, thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Something deeper going on. Something deeper going on. And of course, when we read Psalm 22, and he roars out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We begin to realize there is something even deeper going on. When thou shalt make a soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Speaking, of course, of the resurrection. Because how can he be killed and have all this happen? Prolong his days? I thought he was killed. Ride. It's called the resurrection. Celebrating the Feast of Moses by the Feast of First Fruits. When is the feast of first fruits celebrated? On the morning after Shabbat, after Passover. When was Christ crucified? On Passover. He's in the tomb, three days. On the morning after Shabbat, we call that Sunday morning. He's resurrected, as predicted in the Feast of Moses, and fulfilling many passages, being one of them. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Very key idea. You are not pardoned from your sin through leniency. Leniency isn't righteousness, isn't really justice. It may seem merciful to the recipient. The good news is you are pardoned because it's been Paid in full. The righteous judge has arranged for your full burden to have been paid off. It's not by leniency or some loophole or some misguided laxity that we have escaped our destiny. But because that destiny has been fully paid and provided for. He shall see the travel of his soul and shall be satisfied. This whole episode was to satisfy a righteous God who cannot compromise his righteousness and yet loves you so much that he went to such incredible extremes to have that provided for. He shall see the travel of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. How are you justified before the throne of grace? By Christ's righteousness, not yours. If you really understand that, you can take comfort and confidence in Christ's faithfulness, not yours. He did the whole job. And you can appropriate it to yourself for eter- throughout eternity by simply accepting it, by simply receiving it. If you're in prison, and there's a full pardon for you, full pardon for you, there's one thing you've got to do. You've got to accept it. There are people that serve their sentences, having a full pardon who refused to accept it. So the sentence was executed. A pardon has to be accepted, even in our clumsy laws. That's the procedure. There are cases on record where that happens. You have a destiny, but a grim destiny without the pardon. And the pardon is there for the acceptance of it, paid for. God is satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. The son of the judge, so to speak, has paid the whole fine. For he shall bear their iniquities. There again is the vicarious substitution, the substitution of Jesus Christ on our behalf.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources visit the Apple or Android app store, or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.